We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Bach and Dr. Eric Rima for February 28, 2023. Today we conclude our observance of American Heart Month with nationally recognized cardiologist Dr. Harry Pellet, a prominent cardiologist at St. Jude Medical Center in Fullerton, California, which is near Disneyland. Dr. Pellet continues our coverage of the new high-sensitivity troponins for the diagnosis of type 2 myocardial infarction. Dr. James Kennedy continues our series on the plight of rural hospitals. Laurie Johnson has the latest coding news. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. And Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who often visits Lake Wobegon, where all, all the, the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are both happy. Here's Chuck Buck. Thanks, Clay Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 543rd live edition of Talk to Tuesday. Good morning, Erica. I used to love that show. Good morning, Chuck, yeah, and good morning, everyone. <laughs> yeah. You know, as you heard Clark Anthony announce, we conclude our observance of American Heart Month. You know, last Tuesday, Dr. Mishamin was our special guest, and today we have another cardiologist and special guest. That's Dr. Harry Pallet. He's out here in Southern California, where I am. <laughs> yes, it's nice to close out American Heart Month with a cardiologist. Indeed it is, Erica. And so what's your talkback segment this morning? I am talking about lessons learned from a readmission project. Well, as always, Erica, we are looking forward to your talkback segment. We have much news to report and begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And today I want to talk about ChatGPT and who needs coders. As a non-coder and finance person, I decided to try out ChatGPT and look up some potential codes. I started with something easy. My first question to ChatGPT was, I'm looking for the diagnosis code for a broken arm. ChatGPT responds, the diagnosis code for a broken arm, also known as a fracture of the arm, may vary depending on the specific location and type of the fracture. However, the most commonly used code for a fracture of the upper arm or bone humerus is S42.2, while the most commonly used code for a fracture of the forearm bones, radius and ulna, is S52.5. For example, the specific diagnosis code for a closed fracture of the shaft of the right humerus would be S42.32XA, while the specific code for a closed fracture of the distal end of the left radius would be S52.532A. Well, I decided to try something more difficult. So my new question was, a patient has chest pains and an irregular heartbeat. The patient is 60 years old and obese. His pulse is rapid and thready. What's the diagnosis code? And so ChatGPT responds, based on the information provided, a possible diagnosis code for a patient with chest pains, an irregular heartbeat, and a rapid and thready pulse who is 60 years old and obese may be I-49.3, which is the code for ventricular premature depolarization, which as a non-coder, I have no idea what that is. Ventricular premature depolarization, VPT, is a type of arrhythmia characterized by an irregular heartbeat and a rapid weak pulse. So, for all, and that's then that's the end of the ChatGPT response. So for all the coders and healthcare professionals listening, reading the above should have a huge impact on you. For all the finance people listening, you may well soon be arguing claim reimbursement with ChatGPT. And all I can say is that ChatGPT, I hope that ChatGPT can't do consulting or I'm out of a job. And with that, back to you, Chuck. <laughs> 
Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday. It's February the 28th, and you're listening to the 543rd Live Edition Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by, everybody. Are you a healthcare professional looking for the latest resources to improve your skills and stay up to date with industry trends? Look no further than the online stores of Rack Monitor, ICD 10 Monitor, and MedLearn. Because at these online stores, you see a wide variety of educational materials, webcasts, training programs, and much more to assist you and your team. And now, for a limited time, take advantage of an amazing offer it's a flash sale. But hurry, the flash sale lasts only from today through Friday, March 3rd. So act fast and save money. Just enter the code flash sale at checkout and you'll instantly receive a 30% discount on your entire order. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to upgrade your healthcare knowledge and skills for less. Visit Rack Monitor, ICD 10 Monitor, or MedLearn Media and start shopping now. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. February is National Heart Month. This topic seems to be fitting to be discussed today. As coders, we translate the provider's documentation into diagnosis and procedure codes. Sometimes our interpretation can be inaccurate. When auditing an inpatient case recently, I had an aha moment. The patient had presented to the emergency room in a systole. When you look up a systole, the index refers the coder to C, arrest, cardiac. My patient also had a complete heart block and continued to live. The coder had assigned the principal diagnosis of cardiac arrest. When doing a deeper dive, the EKG only showed momentary pauses. Cardiac arrest was not documented at any point in the entire medical record. I looked a little further and found a coding clinic for this situation in in second quarter 2019, page 4, titled Complete Heart Block with Asystole. The guidance was to assign the diagnosis code for complete heart block only. The reference continues by saying that it would not be appropriate to assign the code for cardiac arrest as there is a brief pause of electrical activity with spontaneous recovery of sinus rhythm that is noted on the EKG. The asystole is due to the complete heart block. This reference is supported by guidance on page 5 in the same issue. It is titled, Asystole Without Documentation of Cardiac Arrest, which provides the same direction. The impact of removing cardiac arrest from this case changed the DRG-207 to DRG-243, and the financial impact was approximately $14,700. There is another related coding clinic reference in third quarter 2020, page 26, which is titled Cardiac Arrest with Cardiogenic Shock. This reference was updated for October 1st, 2021, which states that there was an excludes one note for cardiogenic shock for category I-46 that was changed to an excludes two note. I checked my 2023 ICD-10 CM book, and it is indeed an excludes two note. 
my advice is that it's worth the second look when a case in, when a case doesn't feel right. Check coding clinic, the guidelines, and the classification itself. In this case, it would have saved a lot of work, um, and the facility would not have to return a lot of money for this case. And also, I just want to give you a reminder that Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting will be next Tuesday, beginning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and will continue into Wednesday, March 8th. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. I always say that if you take the ab the coding abstract and you reconstruct it and the case doesn't seem to resemble the documentation, then something's missing. Either the documentation's wrong or the coding is wrong. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Lori Johnson, and thanks for the reminder about the upcoming Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, a program that we're going to be monitoring here. We continue our reporting on the plight of rural health. It's our ongoing series here at ICD-10, Monitor and Talk to Enthusiast, as we seek to increase awareness of the horrendous challenges rural health providers face daily. Here now with the second report is Dr. James Kennedy. Good morning, Dr. Kennedy. Thank you, Chuck, and thank you all for allowing me to be with you again. Rural health care is certainly challenged today. Rural health care is rural hospitals for closing and despite uh, all the talk and the advocacy of rural health care, no margin, no mission. Unless rural hospitals, rural providers, rural facilities are profitable, they cannot, maintain, they cannot stay open, pay the salaries that attract great personnel, and thus we as HIM professionals can advocate rural health by doing the things that we do best, which is documentation, coding, and the process thereof. So in addressing this, I'd like to address a couple of myths uh, that we should uh, pay attention to and a number of solutions. First, the myth that we need to address is that critical access hospitals are exempt from the issue. Critical access hospitals, while they are cost reimbursed plus 1% for traditional Medicare, Medicare Advantage is not part of that, and there is an increasing use of Medicare Advantage amongst uh, our senior citizens, and as such, the cost reimbursement aspects of Medicare do not apply. In addition, in uh, critical access hospitals, private insurance and Medicaid likewise follow the same rules as the other hospitals in most states. There may be some exceptions, like in Minnesota, but nevertheless, these are typically DRG reimbursed and should be attended to, uh, uh, especially the clinical documentation aspects of it. Number two, let us not forget Medicaid. Medicaid often uses a different inpatient reimbursement system than Medicare. They, uh, in many states, they use the 3M all-payer refined DRG system, particularly in states like California, Texas, uh, and the like. Of news, the state of Georgia will be transitioning its Medicaid program from the Medicare Severity DRG system to the APR DRG system starting next January. 
If you're located in the state of Georgia and are not paying attention to the APR system, now is the time to become familiar with it because in the state of Maryland, when they transitioned from MSDRGs or the Maryland system to APR, money left the the rural, was transitioned from rural hospitals towards the major academic centers in Baltimore. Number three, one of the issues with rural health care is the perception of the citizens that they have to go to the larger cities to, to get their health care taken care of with what I call Mecca syndrome, that, the, that we are unable in the rural facilities to, to render quality care. Now is the time to address quality measures, particularly the CMS star ratings. We can actually work to get our star ratings up, and working with that will at least communicate to the local newspaper that we are a high-quality facility. The, the global malnutrition composite is an area of opportunity of which dietitians can work with the medical staff, work with the coders, to accurately represent uh, nutritional uh, malnutrition, food insecurity, and to address this as a quality measure. If your hospital is doing obstetrics, the obstetrical severe compli compl uh, complications composite is another aspect whereby uh, CMS will label your rural facility as birthing friendly. Definitions, therefore, will be important Troponin, lactate, other definitions, your sepsis workflows are absolutely important. Talk to your doctors. Their billing has recently changed on the inpatient environment for the evaluation and management codes, whereby the higher level of billing by the doctor will involve the uh, severity of illness, uh, medical decision-making, the patients have to look sick on paper. Uh, another aspect of this is um, there's just so many other diseases in the rural environment. Last but not least, if your hospital medical case mix index is below 1.20, consider pre-bill review. Our experience is that if a $100 fee for a pre-bill review by an outside auditor will render $400 to $500 on the average of return if that pre-bill review can query the physician, get the documentation in the record that can be accurately coded. Uh, again, we'll chat with you next month about other aspects of rural health care, but what we can do in the rural environment to preserve its integrity. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Jim. That was Dr. James Kennedy, the founder and president of CDIMD. Chuck? Thank you both. And just ahead, our lead story this morning with Dr. Harry Pallad reporting on the high-sensitivity cardiac proponents. But first, this very important message. Today's healthcare world is one of confusion, uncertainty, and noncompliance. During tight budgets, the folks at MedLearn are here to help with the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Keep your team trained and in the know with this web-based platform created to help you make an impact on your revenue without breaking the bank so you can focus on what matters most, patient outcomes. For a single low annual subscription, 
all your teams will have convenient one-stop access to the complete libraries of three trusted brands, MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor. One low monthly cost, unlimited access, and all the CEUs you need. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Increase your knowledge with workable coding solutions and actionable answers so you can put the focus back on patient care with the MedLearn Media Resource Center. We conclude our month-long recognition of American Heart Month with a guest appearance today, a prominent cardiologist, Dr. Harry Pellett. Good morning, Dr. Pellett, and welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday, sir. Well, thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here uh, with everybody here and with Dr. Kennedy, who's really uh, mentored me over the years. What I want to do today is talk about the high-sensitivity uh, troponins. They've really been the bane of MD's existence, as well as many of the CDI and the uh, coders for many years. I think everybody's dealt with the problem that there's a slight rise in troponin, and people want to know, is it a troponin leak? Is it real? Is it not real? Is it a type 1 MI? Is it a type 2 MI? And you put queries, and the doctor's go. I don't really know. And there's a lot of uh, frustration um, about this. And part of the frustration is we keep changing the answers. What's a very important document for people to be familiar with is the universal definition of MI, which came out in 2018, which is relatively new, which I think uh, gives a lot of clarity to this situation, as well as a, a new ICD code. What came out with the universal definition of MI in 2018 is that if a troponin is elevated and it goes up or down by 20%, by definition, that is acute myocardial injury. So acute myocardial injury is not the same as a myocardial infarction. What you're saying is, hey, this troponin is elevated, so something has happened to the heart. But it's not necessarily an infarct. I'm not saying it's a type 1 infarct where there's been a blockage of a blood flow to the heart. I'm not saying it's a type 2 MI where there's been something very dramatic, like very severe high blood pressure or very low blood pressure, but I'm saying something has happened. So, And uh, just two years ago, this became a new code, which is I5A, which is acute myocardial injury. So it's an elevated troponin. Um, it's acute in the sense that the uh, number goes up and down by um, at least 20%. What's important is that it is a, a CC, and it is also a SOI2, depending on which of the uh, systems you're talking about. So as Dr. Kennedy referred to, whether you're in rural or a non-rural area, it's uh, very important to be um, aware of this distinction. If you go to the uh, coding book, it will mention that if you are coding I5A to the extent possible, uh, you should try to say what is the underlying cause. Is it from congestive heart failure? Is it from high blood pressure? Is it from a, a tachycardia? Um, also, if you code it as an acute myocardial infarction, by definition, it is not acute myocardial um, injury. Now, sometimes there can be some overlap because if somebody's short of breath, well, that could be a symptom of ischemia in a type 1 MI, or maybe it's just heart failure and um, acute myocardial injury. But in any case, this um, new code of acute myocardial um, infarction really gives um, coders as well as the clinicians um, a lot of wiggle room and makes things really um, much more simple for um, everybody. And I think it is a major advance. And I also always tell both CDI and coders, when you're dealing with your physicians, you really want to have the primary source verification, right? We don't really care what CMS says or other people. We really want to know what the experts say. And if you go to this paper, and I sent um, the, the group here a, a copy of the paper, and hopefully that could be made um, 
available to people. There's a very nice figure, figure six, sort of um, explains to you the difference between acute myocardial injury and myocardial ischemia. So whenever I'm dealing with clinicians, even myself as a physician advisor, rather than it saying my opinion, um, I think it always makes life much easier to say, hey, this is not my personal opinion. This is actually the um, opinion of the uh, world experts. So again, be aware there is a new code, acute myocardial injury. It means that there's an elevated troponin and I am not calling it a myocardial infarction. And uh, thank you for your time and back to you. Thank you, Harry. I'm going to remind everybody that I5A is actually titled non-ischemic myocardial injury. And it's actually used for acute and chronic or unspecified myocardial injury. So it's very important to have the the providers um, document myocardial injury. If it's acute myocardial injury due to ischemia, that's an infarction. If it's acute myocardial injury that's not due to ischemia, then that would be your I5A. Um, so thank you, Harry. Uh, that was Dr. Harry Pellet. Dr. Pellet is a prominent cardiologist at St. Jude Medical Center in Fullerton, California. Now's the time for our very popular segment here at Talk to Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Good morning, Dr. Reamer. It's all yours. I am like the FBI. If you invite me in, I will help you. This leads to interesting assignments. Most recently, I did a project on denials of readmissions from the payer side. Now, lest you get upset that I have gone over to the dark side, I actually believe in the system. I think that providers should take excellent care of patients, not perpetrate fraud or abuse. Providers should document well and get paid appropriately. Payers should generate denials only when they are justified. It is enlightening and empowering to step over to the other side of the aisle on occasion. I evaluated 30-day readmissions to see if something done or not done on the index admission caused the readmission such that the payer would combine the admissions into a single DRG. My final determination was either approve, deny, or I would kick it back for a secondary review by the payer for questionable or equivocal cases. I also noted whether the two cases were related, unrelated, or causal. Even causal wasn't an automatic denial. It depended on whether the action or inaction should have predictably or avoidably resulted in the readmission. I approved about 95% of the cases. Here are some common features I found. Readmissions often occur in the context of bad, complicated, or progressive disease processes. So COPD, heart failure, sickle cell, atrial fibrillation. A single admission doesn't typically cure the condition, so a recurrence is not surprising. If the patient is non-compliant with discharge instructions, readmission can't be attributed to the hospital or provider. Complications can occur, but they often were unavoidable or unpredictable, exempting them from denial, in my opinion. Readmissions are often due to completely unrelated conditions. These cannot be blamed on the index admission. Planned readmissions are excluded. If there is a long interval between admissions, it, is often, uh, it often made it difficult to c- conclude that the first admission reliably caused the second one. One of the scenarios which arose not infrequently was a gastrointestinal hemorrhage in a patient who was on anticoagulation. The discharge dosage needed to be appropriate. If the patient had a relative contraindication, but the providers opted to restart anticoagulation, the justification needed to be laid out. 
I had an example of a patient who was erroneously labeled with an acute DVT when it was a three-year-old clot. I felt they could have figured that out on the first admission from the same data available on the second admission when they did. So I penalized them for not reacting to the imaging report appropriately. This project was another illustration of how the discharge summary is critical. If the discharge summary wasn't telling the story accurately or detailing the appropriate discharge instructions, if the disposition seemed ill-advised without a notation that the patient and or family had made it a conscious decision, if the follow-up appointments from the first admission were not with the appropriate caregivers or in a timely fashion, all of these entered into my calculation to determine approval or denial. This project just underscored how the provider documenting their thought process can make or break them. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, providers should practice excellent medicine, document what they did, have it coded accurately, and the reimbursement and quality metrics, including readmissions, will fall where they belong. If your providers need some guidance as to how to effectively document the patient encounter, have them take Dr. Reamer's documentation modules Please read my article in ICD-10 Monitor for more details and the link to the modules. And with that, Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Erica, very much. Let's take a look at some of the comments we've been receiving here since we've been on the air, Erica. Okay. Our good friend, Dr. John Zellum, said he thinks it's important to remember that a big factor affecting rural hospitals is the lack of specialties such as cardiology and neurology leaning to the need to transfer many patients to a higher level of care. A critical access hospital that he works with um, had seven, yes, he, <laughs> he says, yes, seven, patients needing transfer in the past 24 hours. This also enforces the importance of these rural hospitals. Jim, did you want to comment on that? In my experience, uh, rural hospitals, it's not so much whether or not the doctor wants to go there, but whether or not the doctor's spouse you don't want to move there. Uh, so again, the predicament of rural healthcare is that with no margin, no mission, unless there is some way of representing that that specialist uh, can uh, have a comfortable living, uh, be able to, uh, at, and their spouse uh, or the family is comfortable in the rural environment, having transitioned from the city where they were training to the rural environment requires extra care. So yes, Dr. Zellum is absolutely correct. Specialties are necessary in support of those specialties of the documentation and coding that funds the mission. No margin, no mission uh, is an essential element that we as HIM professionals can be involved with. Thank you. And Dr. Pellard, can you just speak to what constitutes ischemia? Like, if it's non-ischemic myocardial injury, um, how can you sort of determine, like, how should the doctors be addressing it, whether it's ischemic versus non-ischemic? That becomes very complicated. Um, <clears throat> certainly, if there are EKG changes, somebody has a history of coronary artery disease, that would lean you towards um, ischemic. If there's another obvious cause for the troponin rise, um, such as severe sepsis, severe hypotension, severe hypertension, severe bradycardia or tachycardia, that would lean you to non-ischemic. But there is a gray zone there. 
there certainly is a gray zone because we can see type 2 MIs that, that result from some of the things that you're talking about, right? So I think that it, some of it has to do with clinician judgment and they need to determine, you know, and they need, then they need to document it as saying that they think it's a type 2 myocardial infarction as opposed to just calling it myocardial ischemia or, um, you know, supply demand mismatch or demand ischemia or so on and so forth. Let's see, we have another question here. Don't all myocardial cells get injured due to loss of adequate blood supply? Yes and no. It, it, it's a great question, which is more philosophy, to be honest, than, than biological. You can only think of this as sort of mm-hmm. a continuum. Certain cells are going to get injured um, more or less sort of depending on how far they are downstream from the blockage. So let's say something is affecting the whole body. Um, it turns out cells which are sort of near the inside of the ventricle are less affected because they're sort of getting the blood directly. The cells sort of more on the outside are getting their blood sort of earlier, so they're also less affected. So some of the cells going in are going to be more affected. And you can have a little injury, but it's not enough to cause the troponin to uh, come out. So these are, these are great complicated questions. So when you ask the question, you're not getting a straight answer from the doctor. It's because often there is not a straight answer. When coders push and say, hey, is this going to be, was this injury your type two? They're just going to say, I just don't know. Um, and again, you do the best you can. But again, I think the acute myocardial injury will be uh, something that people will be able to hold on to and be happy with. Thank you. And, and I, you know, I do agree. I think that sometimes we try to pin the doctors down and the answer sometimes is, I'm just not sure. So I think that that's a good place to end there. And thank you very much, Dr. Pellet, for answering that. Chuck, we're going to turn it back over to you to wrap. That is going to be a wrap for this, our 543rd live edition of Talk to Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Dr. James Kennedy, Tim Powell, and of course, Dr. Harry Pallet, who reported our lead story. And a very special thanks to you, my co-host, Dr. Eric Reamer. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk to Tuesday. And I tend to have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.